So we're working through the series um, on the kingdom of God. Second, let me deliver something to you. Working through this series on the kingdom of God, and if you look up on the wall up there, it says "Awaken to the kingdom reality." To kingdom reality, and if you think about the songs that we just sang, I was out there like just kind of processing the words. And if we were to live, if we were to live in a way that we actually believed the things we just sang, how would that change us? as we live and walk on this earth. If we were to live that way. I mean, you all know the words to Amazing Grace. And before that, we sang Reckless Love. I just want to read the words to you again. The bridge part of it. There's no shadow you won't light up. No mountain you won't climb up. Coming after me. There's no wall you won't knock down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. If we were to live in that reality, day after day after day, what would your life look like? How would it be different? Can we answer that question even? To know what our life would look like if we lived within that reality. See, we sing the songs, we say the words, and we actually have this language that we use within the church environment to where we talk as though we're awakened to this kingdom reality. But the truth is, when we step out the door, and this is me too, we don't live with that sort of boldness and that, that craziness and that weird life. It's strange to live that way. To live in the truth Of a kingdom reality. So the, the word awaken to a kingdom reality is our missions conference theme this year. We did not plan any of it. The idea of going through this idea of the kingdom of God and teaching through the kingdom of God and how that looks like as a church family and how we express ourselves as a kingdom in the kingdom environment that we are part of God's kingdom and looking through these passages in Luke. I had no idea the Christian and Missionary Alliance was going to create their theme around the idea of the kingdom of God. It's pretty wild. So I think the Lord's trying to tell us something, right? Not just here, but everywhere. That if we were to live, again, live in the reality of being awake to the kingdom of God, we would live differently. Where have we been? Where have we been so far? So the first, the first parable we talked about, right? The parable of the lost sheep. And really what we were, we were kind of wrestling with was what is actually happening here in Luke? What, what is Jesus doing when he tells these parables? What's Jesus doing when he shares the same theme three different times with three different stories and three different objects? We have the sheep, the coin, and then today we're going to talk about the son, the prodigal son. What's Luke, what's Luke trying to show us that Jesus is saying? And the first Sunday we talked about this, I, I made the, the claim that we, our approach, our approach should be like Jesus' approach. That the mission of the disciple is to love people and to draw them in 
to a relationship with God, to draw people in that our behavior and activity and the way that we think about this world and how we interact with others should be so loving that we can draw them in so that the Lord, heaven and earth, can touch them and say, enter into relationship with me. That's the mission of the disciple. Then last week we talked about lost people matter to God. That's one of our core values in our denomination within the Christian and missionary alliance. Lost people matter to God. He wants them found. And I made that, the, the, I kind of yelled about it, I guess, that we need to develop gospel-centered families and a gospel-centered church. And what that looks like is lots of different ways, but really at the core of it is it's to create repeated opportunities for every man, woman, and child to respond to Jesus. And that brings us to the prodigal son. Luke 15, picking up with verse 11. I'm going to do something weird today. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> Who wants to read this? Anybody want to read it for the church? Not just me, but another voice. I'm just going to give you an opportunity. I'll throw it out there. You want it? Come on up. Aaron, one of our elders, is going to read. And I'm going to hand the mic over to him. And he's going to read the story. So I want you to just, you can follow along in your Bible. What version are you reading out of? NIV, so just listen to the story. Here you go. Enjoy the story of the Lord. Jesus continued. There was, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in, the, in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile... Are we keeping going, or is that it? That's 25, or yeah, starting at 25. All right. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother came, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes has come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we, we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's probably two or three like super famous parables that Jesus shares. Prodigal son is one of those. Good Samaritan. After that, we they kind of all blend together, right? But you have these like big titles. Well, the prodigal son only exists in Luke. And Luke does this interesting thing with this. He doesn't let us know how the story ends other than the lost son was found. Jesus, I think, and I'm once again projecting a little bit, Jesus, I think, shares a story. Because he knows how easy it is for us to identify with sin and for selfishness. He knows what it looks like to be, to be uh, messed up and ask for forgiveness. He is he's putting it on the table because that will resonate with the people that he's talking to. We go back to the beginning of Luke 15. Remember what's happening. The Pharisees are starting to question his fellowship, who he's hanging out with, who he's having meals with. They're taking that into consideration, saying the people that you're spending time with are not good. And that says something about you, maybe. Jesus, prophet, or the one who claims to be the Messiah. But Jesus knows that his message, the thing that he's saying and the story that he's telling will actually resonate with his audience. They're the ones who continue to draw closer and closer and lend an ear and want to hear. It's the target audience is who he's speaking to, right? It's easy for them to hear and receive and say, yes, I've screwed my life up. I can receive the good things of the Lord. You're telling me that if I come back to you, you'll open the door for me to come in? That's an easy lesson for them to grasp. Luke does a goofy thing with our hearts, though. He doesn't tell us what the older brother does. We don't get to see the final result of the older brother. We hear his complaint. We hear his frustration. We hear his, his uh, disagreement with the result. We hear his desire... To have the same blessing bestowed on him, thinking that there was a difference between what the younger son and the older son experienced. Luke does that on purpose. Because one of the big ideas here with this parable is what is our response? So if you're filling in a blank, that is one of the blanks. What is our response? 
See, Jesus taught directly to the people in front of him. But as the stories went out, people continued to repeat the stories and teach the stories and teach the parables. And one of the big lessons is, what is the response? What's the response? What's our response? How do we respond to this type of situation? See, we are often all drawn to things that we want to eat and drink and wear. It's easy for us to identify with the sin. It's easy for us to drift into our own kind of selfish desire or ambition. We regularly can critique or be judgmental to ourselves and say we've wasted or squandered or we're exhausted by pursuing the things of the flesh and want. We know what that feels like. We all live by our self-will. We all have a false independence that we want to control. We will long to get away from authority to be our own masters. This parable is about asking the question, what's your response to God's compassion to his grace? What's your response? The story leaves us hanging. So what is our response? If you were to create a similar situation in your own household, right? We all have these kind of like unfair situations in our family, these things that have happened. I can talk about probably a thousand of them from my own household to where one of my siblings got something better than me. I think that we hear that in our house a lot. That's not fair. I know I have an 11-year-old who thinks he's 14 and thinks he deserves the thing that the 14-year-old does. Well, that doesn't happen to him. Well, think about it in your own life. I mean, some of you who are an only child, fine, you get that excuse. But you can see it. Maybe it happens at work. Maybe it happens in your extended family to where there's a blessing that continues to be poured out to somebody who doesn't deserve it over and over and over and over and over again. And it's frustrating. It's irritating. Well, what do we do? How do we respond to that? For me... I stay inside. I don't want to go join the party. I don't want to share in little brother's joy of the blessing. In fact, I want to complain and talk to somebody else who identifies and says, that's not fair. They don't deserve that. They don't deserve to be forgiven. That person deserves the hell they created for themselves. Luke is sharing this parable in this way so that we have to wrestle with that same idea because it's so familiar to us. We see the injustice and feel the difference between the blessing and the not receiving the blessing. We know what that looks like. What is our response? We're going to be in the parable of the prodigal son for two weeks. This week, I want to really wrestle down this idea that we're going to get to here in just a second. But next week, what I want us to do as a church family is we're going to build out a larger idea of what salvation looks like. So we say in church a lot, I'm not going to, this might be a, a small little sermon that we say in church a lot, or talk in church a lot about being saved, that Jesus saves. Mighty to save, we sang this morning. But what does that actually mean? When we say those particular things, what are we actually saying? When I say lost people matter to God, he wants them found. When we read these three parables and and there's a celebration of the lost thing being found, what are we meaning when we say that? 
So it's really important for a church to understand when we talk about salvation, what that means. What it means to us. And so it's not just that you're rescued. It's not just that. It's really easy to say, I was rescued, and that's it. And a lot of times that's where we stop, and we say, I was rescued. And then we live out this world of grace, hoping that all things are good, and we just kind of sit. But what we see here over and over and over again, and this is kind of our big idea for today, is celebration is highly valued in the kingdom of God. All three parables here, when the lost thing was found, heaven rejoiced, the angels rejoiced, and parties were thrown. Remember the lost coin. The lady went and grabbed her friends, and they celebrated this one coin that was found. What happened in this prodigal son when we heard, we heard the story? The fattened calf was slaughtered. They had a party. There was dancing and celebration in the room when the bro- older brother was sitting outside of it. Celebration is a high value. To the kingdom of God. If we were to awaken to the kingdom, we would celebrate regularly. It is easy for us to like spin it and feel the way the older brother did. To feel angry towards the unjust. To feel frustrated that other people are receiving the blessing. But what God is trying to instill in us is that we need to have joy and celebration when lost people are found. We need to be actively pursuing because there is a joy that bubbles up inside of us. When somebody, and here's the big word, when somebody is transformed. Transformation is fundamental to the kingdom of God. Transformation is fundamental to the kingdom of God. And we have to get excited about that. I struggled as a kid sharing my testimony in front of a church because it was so boring. I devalued that the Lord saved me. Why? Because I grew up in the church. I grew up going to VBS and going to church camp and doing all these church things. And sure, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christian. And I just was blessed to be born into an amazing family to where I was forced to go to church every Sunday morning. And it was awesome. It was awesome when my mom slept in and my kids didn't. I mean, I didn't make it to Sunday school like happened in our house today. That I remember those feelings. Where I'm like, wait, everyone be quiet in the house. Shh. Don't wake up mom. But I always struggled with that as, as like a 20-year-old or as a, a young pastor being 24. My Christian life is boring. I don't have a fun story to tell. I don't have this crazy, dramatic, transformational thing that happened to me. Those stories are what's supposed to make me excited about Jesus. And this is why the prodigal son is such an important parable. Because we are supposed to be just as excited for the lost son as the father is. That's what's supposed to be stirring inside of us. As the kingdom reality awakens our heart and soul, the joy that we experience when a lost person comes and is received by the Father should be equal. They should be identical. We should celebrate. We should party. We should have this incredible slaughter of the fattened calf. I don't even know what that looks like in the 21st century. I mean, maybe here it might 
we go find a cap and slaughter. But you understand what I'm saying? There's a party that's to exist. When the lost person is found, celebration is part of the kingdom of God is all about. So when somebody gets over a drug addiction, we celebrate with them. When somebody gets out of poverty, we celebrate with them. When somebody finds the Lord, we absolutely celebrate with them. Whether or not they're an 8-year-old who's grown up in the church or a 55-year-old who's lived a life of sin and chaos. The celebration should be equal. There's three different stories in this Luke chapter 15. Three different scenarios. But all the, all the bedrock is the lost thing was found and there was a party. Celebration. Transformation is fundamental. So here's what has to happen for me who grew up in a church and was like, let, like spoon-fed Christianity in a way that didn't make, I mean, it made complete sense to where when I went off to college and I saw everything other than Christianity, I was thought, these people are broken. I'm the right one. Everybody out there is a mess. And I just stayed my course. But what has happened over the last 15 years, as I've grown and learned and, and understood the scriptures, is that I still need to be transformed. Day after day after day after day, transformation still matters to me. It's not the one-time thing that happens when I come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior at Timberlake Ranch Camps in Nebraska, where I just found out that Steve Stumbo counseled that, which is a crazy kind of thing that happened. But those, that thing, it doesn't just stop there. Continual transformation over and over and over again. How does that happen? Transformation comes with humble repentance. Have you ever really screwed up and had to say sorry in a way that you knew there were going to be consequences and you weren't going to be able to get out of it and it just was going to happen no matter what you were in trouble but you really came to the table saying I am sorry for what I did transformation comes with humble repentance see we attach all these ugly sins like I mean, I'm not even going to go through the list. Read through the small epistles. There's lots of lists of ugly sins. But we don't think about pride as one of those sins that we need to ask for repentance for. We don't think about arrogance as one of those sins that we need to ask for repentance for. Or an attitude towards others that we need to ask for repentance for. But if you were to humble yourself and say, Lord, inspect my heart, inspect my soul, look into my life. Tell me what I need to repent to you about. I'll tell you what, the Spirit of God will be active. And there will be things that you had no idea you were doing that will start to fire in your brain. See, God dispenses gifts richly to those who turn. To those who turn to look at Him. No matter how far gone one is when He turns, the Father is there to receive the child back. People find an open door when they turn to God for forgiveness. I read my utmost for his highest. Does anybody else read that? I like to read it in the hard version, which is, takes you 27 times to read it before you understand it. But it's a beautiful devotional book, 365 days, 
of, of well-written, thought-provoking devotions. I'm going to read... I'm going to read one of the entries dealing with sin and repentance. My sins, my sins, my Savior, how sad on thee they fall. Conviction of sin is one of the most uncommon things that ever happens to a person. It is the beginning of an understanding of God. Jesus Christ said when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict people of sin. And when the Holy Spirit stirs a person's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not that a person's relationship with others that, that bothers him, but his relationship with God. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, Psalm 51.4 says. The wonders of conviction of sin, forgiveness, and holiness are so interwoven that it is only the forgiven person who is truly holy. He proves he is forgiven by being the opposite of what he was previously. By the grace of God. Repentance always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. The surest sign that God is at work in his life is when he says that I have sinned and means it. Anything less is simply sorrow for having made foolish mistakes. A reflex action caused by self-disgust. The entrance into the kingdom of God is through the sharp, sudden pains of repentance, colliding with man's respectable goodness. Then the Holy Spirit, who produces these struggles, begins the formation of the Son of God in a person's life. This new life will reveal itself in conscience, Repentance followed by unconscious holiness. Never the other way around. The foundation of Christianity is repentance. Strictly, strictly speaking, a person cannot repent when he chooses. Repentance is a gift of God. The old Puritans used to pray for the gift of tears. If you ever cease to understand the value of repentance, you allow yourself to remain in sin. Examine yourself to see if you have forgotten how to truly be repentant. It should hit us hard to the repetitive telling of the theme of heaven's receptivity towards the sinner's repentance. The kingdom of God is awakened when lost people repent and then they're transformed. See, the prodigal reminds us that transformation, transformation is essential to the kingdom of God. The prodigal reminds us that transformation is essential to the kingdom of God. Turn with me to Romans 12.2. Actually, does anybody have Romans 12.2 memorized? Anyone? You want to? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Excellent. Yeah. As a teenager, I ask the question all the time, like every other teenager, maybe even you as young adults and older people and as older, older people, you ask the question, what's the will of God? What is the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for activity on the earth? What's the will of God? What does God want from me? He wants you to be renewed by the transformation of your mind. When your mind is different and it's awakened, you will see the earth in the way that God sees the earth. You will be renewed so that as you walk, And as you live, you will have joy when the lost person comes to the Lord. You will live in a way that you believe that God will climb every mountain. He will light up every shadow. He will kick down every wall because he's coming after you. That's how you will live. That's a different way to live. That's a different way to walk. That's a different way to talk to people. You would sound like a crazy person, but that's awesome. I like crazy people. Let's be weird together, right? Let's turn to the best passage in all of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to pick up with verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in the letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what had been brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul, you're so confusing when you write, right? Now listen, continue. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at it, at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we take the veil off and we turn and look at the face of Jesus Christ and we receive the salvation that He brings, when we accept that He's kicked down a door, that He's let let up a shadow, that He's climbed every mountain to save us, when we receive that, the veil's ripped off and we're transformed. We are a new creation. There is a power of the Spirit of God inside of us to go and not just sit and be happy, but to be a witness to the nations. We awaken in a way that's different. That's different. It looks different. It smells different. It feels different. Everything is different. And what? We're weird. Because the world does not like that at all. Because the world... 
The world is used to being mastered of self, to being the younger son that never comes back home. The prodigal reminds us that transformation is essential to the kingdom of God. So what's our next steps? Well, that's hard, right? That's, I just I dumped a lot on the table. I'm not even that organized what I dumped on the table. I just dumped it on the table for you. Well, here's the deal. I'm going to repeat our big idea. Our next step, celebration is highly valued in the kingdom of God. We have to celebrate. We have to celebrate victories. We have to celebrate little kids coming to know Jesus. We have to celebrate doing fun things outside the church. We have to celebrate like we're going to do today at our annual meeting that we sold a building, that we had a crazy year, that we're here and we're living now in this space. We're going to celebrate because the kingdom reality is as God is expressing and using us to advance his kingdom. So whenever you're trying to figure out like a value, a high value, you have to define it. And whenever we celebrate, which I'm awful at celebrating, like I really am, I'm not good at it. I am like the older brother. Like literally in my household and in real life. It's not easy for me to step into the party. I'm usually trying to critique the party and saying how the party can be better. And what we can do to make this party bigger. And how to maybe streamline the party so that the food tasted better. And so that we can like maybe get more people in the room. I mean, you've had conversations with me in the last two and a half months. You know that's how my brain thinks. I'm usually looking at a better angle to do what we're currently doing. I don't stop to pause and celebrate the win. Because there's always a better win. I would be the worst coach in the history of any sport. Because when we finally won, I would complain about winning and say we didn't win big enough. My kids will come home and say, look, i got 100% on this math test. And I'll be like, great, but you got a 65 on your spelling test. That's, <laughs> that's how I do it. So I'm a horrible coach in that way. So here's what has to happen. I have to remind myself regularly, and as your pastor or head shepherd i got to define the win for us. And i got to stop and say, let's go for the win. So here, what do we, what, how do we celebrate? How do we celebrate? What, what are we trying to win? What are we trying to win? We have to define that. Where are we trying to win? We have to define that. And who are we trying to win? We need to define that also. Celebration is important for us. In the next month or so, about six weeks, let's see, what's the date today? Yeah, about the next six weeks, the elders are going to kind of go into a think tank to begin to define and, and play out what our wins are, where we're going, what we're trying to achieve, what it looks like to live awakened to a kingdom reality, and how that happens here in this place. So we would ask that you would be thinking about the elders as we pray and work through vision and mission to give us real words to begin to define the win. So everybody, all churches use the same words, right? But I need words in order for me to stop moving forward for me because then I know what the win is. 
Celebrate. We're going to celebrate. So, <laughs> I don't know which weeby child it was. I'm going to call one of those kids out since I call my kids out all the time. Might have been one from uh, one of the weeby clans. He came running out <laughs> in this hallway, looked at me, screamed, and then threw his Bible at me and hit me right in the gut. <laughs> Everybody knows which one that was, right? I don't, I'm just saying, it, it has struck me, like literally struck me, <laughs> but it also like, it reminded me that there's this enthusiasm in this building, whether it's it's focused well or not. But there's this enthusiasm that where there's a, there's, I'm going to turn one of the weeby kids into a pastor. I know that I am. I'm going to encourage them to act like a buffoon because that's what I did. And we know the stereotypes. When you act like a crazy person at church, those are the ones who become the pastors. But here's the, the reality is, is this enthusiasm, this idea that when I come to this place, it's a celebration, it's fun, it's exciting. I love to go to my church because it's a blast there. And my pastor doesn't get mad when I hit him with my Bible. <laughs> I think that that's a beautiful thing for us as a church to celebrate every single Sunday as we're wrestling and fighting and juxtaposing pain with joy in the same conversation. And I know I'm revealing a lot, and if you're like not familiar very much with me, I'm just like, I'm kind of dumping a little bit. But like Pam and I had this beautiful conversation where we every single day, we have to juxtapose the hurt and pain of life and the joy of life. Like every day we do that. We have these horrible things that are happening to us and these amazing things that are happening to us. And we have to live in the middle of it all and try to talk to people and work and be normal, but then also not be normal because I want us to be weird. And then as we wrestle with that, that's where we get to celebrate the joy of the kingdom, to be awakened to the kingdom of God and to say we're part of a family that's bigger. We're part of this activity that's happening on earth. And we have to fight through the garbage that is illness and sickness and flipping cancer. And on the other side, get to live with joy and hope that eternal hope is coming. That, that is what it looks like to be awakened to the kingdom of God and to live in it. So that when you arrive here, you can throw all of that stuff off and run through the building throwing your Bible at people. And not even feel bad about it. There is a joy there that we all have to capture and we have to put it here and live there because it stinks sometimes, this world that we live in. And that's where I believe Jesus is telling these people, like, you have hope even though things are lost. I'm coming after you. Even though your kid messes up, he's going to come walking through that door. Continue to pray and seek and seek after him. And when he walks through the door, don't be frustrated. Celebrate. Celebrate that he's here, that he's arrived. That he's done being a turd. That's kingdom life. And that's how we're supposed to live. Regardless 
of our chaos. That's what it looks like to live when the Holy Spirit is removing the veil and we're transformed day after day after day. Jesus didn't go to the cross for us to feel comfortable. Jesus didn't go to the cross for us not to have an answer for that person who's struggling. Jesus didn't go to the cross for us to keep hope for ourselves. We are dispensers of God's grace, dispensers of his hope, and we live in a kingdom that will not be shaken.